reception line for a charity in Sydney uh, a little while ago uh, and people were filing past and politely saying hello to the heads of the charity and then to my wife and then to me and a very charming and gracious elder lady from a prosperous area of Sydney immaculately dressed and manicured uh, looked uh, straight at me in the eyes uh, uh, and great warmth radiated and she put her hand on mine she said now sweetie she said I know I've seen you around Sydney many times over the last couple of decades. I said, worse than that, I know we've been introduced, but I've forgotten your name. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to ask you to tell me who you are because I cannot resist the temptation to tell you that you bear an uncanny resemblance to that fellow John Anderson who used to be the Deputy <laughs> Prime Minister. Lord Mayor Campbell Newman, it's great to be here with you. I served for many years around a cabinet table with your mother. Uh, I was very fond of your mother. She was a lovely, warm, friendly person. One of those genuinely beautiful people. Uh, and I mean that uh, in, in every sense of the word. Uh, you will know as her son uh, that uh, the smile often hid a very forceful and gritty approach to life. I remember on one occasion she came to me with an idea that involved spending quite a bit of money on disadvantaged rural communities. Uh, and she said, uh, are you with me on this? And I said, absolutely. She said, do you think the Treasurer and the Finance Minister and the Prime Minister will be? And I said, no, not with that price tag attached to it. Good, she said, well, I'll go out and publish it now as our policy. <laughs> uh, and then uh, they can clean up the mess afterwards. <laughs> and uh, I have to tell you that she and I lost quite a bit of skin over that, but we got the policy. Uh, and uh, if I may, to Ron Boswell, uh, to um, your fellow political uh, secular, if I may say so in the context of today, leaders and church leaders uh, from uh, far and wide in this wonderful state. Well, like so many Australians, I watched on with horror uh, at uh, the recent uh, seasonal events or out-of-seasonal natural events in this state uh, over the summer period. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I want to say to you that our hearts certainly went out to you. We admired greatly the leadership that was shown, uh, the volunteerism, uh, and all of the things that went to ensuring that the best of a dreadful situation was made. It did cause me to reflect on something, and that is that tragic as it was, and particularly tragic where lives were lost, we are fortunate indeed, are we not, to live in a country where we have the capacity to mount outstanding emergency responses and the financial wherewithal to assist communities and indeed the state, frankly, recover. Those are good things. The great majority of people who live on the surface of the globe today do not live in societies where such things are possible. Yet we take them for granted. 
But I want to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I don't think we should take the great blessings we enjoy for granted. I think we are in very, very great danger in the West of seeing our privileged position ebb away. As a farmer, I'm very conscious that if you want to grow a good crop, you have to first till the soil in which the crop is grown. The crop of freedom, of democracy, of all of the good things we take for in our lives is in fact Christianity. And yet our society has moved away from it and so little understands now the soil in which the crops of freedom are grown that I do not believe that we can continue to expect to grow those crops. And I'm deeply sobered and deeply concerned by this. I really am. You know, it strikes me as a great irony that the atheistic regime in Beijing better understands our history than we do. I'm indebted to the ABC, I'm sorry Heather, another media organisation, but <laughs> the ABC Religion Hour, if it still exists, for a broadcast they had a couple of years ago, uh, and someone gave me the transcript, and it was uh, with a, a very senior correspondent in Beijing, and he was reporting on a major study that the communist government had undertaken into the Christian church in China. And the report had come back indicating that the church growth in China was amazing and that it is not likely to be stopped and it caused great consternation and is, that is, of course, behind the persecution of the house church movement in particular in China. Why? I'll tell you why. As our correspondent said, the Chinese government understands that it is Christians who start to agitate for the recognition of the little person. For the radical idea that we take for granted, yet you find in no other culture, no other belief system that I've ever encountered, that all have dignity before God. And that the king must respect the peasant just as the peasant is expected to respect the king. The Good Samaritan story. The Bible, of course, is based on the whole idea that each is precious. And the Chinese understand their European history. It was that radical notion that gave way to the idea, that built the idea of representation in Parliament. Peaceful means of removing those who become corrupted by the lure of power, which is almost all people who get hold of power. Not Ron Boswell and me, but <laughs> most people. Um, uh, and uh, you need a peaceful means to resolve that. And democracy has evolved out of it. Nor do we understand the way in which transformed and renewed lives have transformed our society. My political hero is a man called William Wilberforce. Many of you, he's still a hero today to Christians everywhere. He was a man who came from Hull, entered Parliament as an extraordinarily privileged and wealthy young man with a world at his feet in an age of great moral messiness in Great Britain, it was a superpower, but it was a dreadful place. Inequitable, corrupt, vice-ridden. And he had everything to gain by remaining the sort of dissolute young man that he was, but he got converted. He got converted and he was transformed. And this man went on to do something that was extraordinary for somebody from the mercantile class, a very wealthy man. He came to see that people with black skin mattered equally to God, to those with white skin. And he led the greatest human rights campaign of all times. 
that to free the slaves. You know, the left in this country used to prattle on about human rights uh, until Wales became important, uh, until uh, you know the cows came home. But we've erased our understanding that it was the Christians who gave rise to our democratic freedoms and to the idea that slaves should be freed, and so on and so forth. We've jettisoned it all. Now, England, the country that exported Christianity and freedom, you know, the mother of the parliaments and what have you, has changed. A bit like Australia, there was a time when Christianity, even if you didn't go to church, was seen as true. Then there was a time when it was just one of many truths. Now, according to the intelligentsia, it's dangerous and you shouldn't expose your children to it. And England's busily exporting the new atheism, the Richard Dawkinses of this world, and the Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens wrote, uh, uh, God is not great, why religion poisons everything. You're all aware of that book? He was in Sydney about 12 months ago. He was at the Opera House with the ABC. You can see how I love that organisation. I think it was them. (laughs) They had this dangerous ideas conference, you see. So here's one of their great heroes, Christopher Hitchens, the brilliant man who's against God. He's up there. At the same time, ironically, I have to tell you, I'm an Anglican. They had, the Anglican Church had a thing called, uh, an outreach thing. They called it the uh, 39, 39 articles, 39 prominent Australians talking about their Christian faith. And they were prominent Australians, well, 38 of them were, I was the 39th. Um, <laughs> remarkable men, you know, from captains of industry to Peter Costello to sportsmen to scientists to medicines, proclaiming their belief in the resurrected Christ, while Christopher Hitchens is saying only an imbecile believes in a resurrected Christ today. I would have thought that was a a potential field day for the media. 39, 38 plus one, prominent Australians saying they do believe, while the great atheists are saying only an infantile believes. Isn't that rich ground? And yet the media confronted with something unfortunate like a whole lot of thinking, intelligent Australians who believe in a resurrected Christ, easiest just to ignore it, isn't it? What have we come to? Christopher Hitchens has a brother. His name's Peter. Peter was an atheist too, and he went to live in Russia for quite a while, and he saw what 70 or 80 years of atheistic communist rule had done to the people, and he converted. And he's written a book called The Rage Against God. And in that, he mounts incredibly powerfully the argument that we are being blind and foolish beyond belief. He says, we've silenced God, we've mocked him, we've sidelined him, we won't give him a role in the public square. Must we learn it all again that no society that says it can do it without God preserves its freedoms or lasts for very long? Brother of the great atheist, that's what he says. And he goes on to talk about some of the disastrous results, and again, he'd have seen them in Russia, of these things. You know the first thing he nominates? that's been so damaging out of all of this? The trashing of marriage. The trashing of family. And he argues very powerfully, and I agree with him because I can see it. I saw it in public life. Your elites, your intelligentsia, the trendy, who are at the forefront of trashing traditional marriage and traditional family and seem only to speak for adults and never for the interests of the children who have to grow up in some sort of environment, ladies and gentlemen. So they, in a way, are the least to suffer from the trashing of marriage. They can go and find a trophy bride, or a yacht, or a chalet in Switzerland to take their mind off the pain. 
But as it filters down through society, the results are more and more and more and more devastating. And there's a little town not far from where I live. It used to be a good, honest working town. It's now a social security town. The school has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. There's 12 kids in that primary school today. They have between them three mothers and five fathers. Will those children, precious every one of them, be selfless givers to humanity, able to contribute to society, take their place in our community and help us build a bigger, stronger community and families of their own? Or will they be people tragically locked into a cycle of welfare dependency and of deep need drawing on the rest of the community, I ask you? They will be preoccupied with self. And that is another enormous price we are paying for the abandonment of Christianity. Selflessness built our freedoms. Selfishness is destroying them. One thing politicians know about is what you're thinking. <laughs> they employ you know, very sophisticated and expensive polling techniques to establish what you're thinking so that they can tell you what you're thinking and hopefully you'll say, what a great leader. Now, the trouble is that, of course, nobody thinks the same thing anymore because we're breaking up as a society and it's almost impossible to find a common thread anymore. But the other people who know what you're thinking, the advertising industry, and in particular the banks... Sorry, I offend everybody by the time I finish this morning. <laughs> and you may recall that advertisement that just had a big page and a hand pointing out of it, look after the most important person in the world, you. Stop thinking about it for a moment. Isn't that what's ripping our society apart? Isn't it that, that very selfishness that we now idolise that so threatens ours and our children's future? And more than just the fabric of our society, it spills over into economics. The thing that is really shattering us now is, of course, the GFC. We've been largely immune from it in Australia. No, it wasn't very long ago that I would have said that there'd been a good government that had a bit to do with that. And I suppose if I'm honest, it's China taking all our exports and all those sorts of things. But I think we're all sense, we're all aware, aren't we? We've been very fortunate in this country, but that the world is in deep, deep, deep trouble. You've got once wealthy countries all over the world, once really wealthy countries, so deeply in hock that their responses will be one of three or a combination of three things. They'll have to massively wind back government services, and in a selfish age that's a very painful thing to do because no one wants to lose anything. They'll have to raise taxes, ditto, or default on debt repayments. All of them threaten us, threaten those societies and the Western alliance, indeed the global outlook. There's something, ladies and gentlemen, that in an age when politicians want to say, we'll make sure this never happens again and we'll put in place the regulations that won't let the greedy bankers and so forth do it again that we're overlooking. The crisis has its roots in character failing and in moral failing, in greed and in poor judgement. And you can't legislate against those things. You actually need a cultural environment where people understand that your word should be your bond, that you should earn rather than seek instant gratification on borrowed money, the things that you want. I'm not saying I'm against sensible use of debt. I'm not against that at all. I'm a good capitalist, after all. But this is out of control, and you won't fix it by regulation. And it wasn't just a few greedy bankers in the United States. 
what it's revealed is that everywhere governments and their citizens have been living beyond their means. And what it amounts to, of course, is a monstrous intergenerational theft because we're putting our children and our grandchildren's futures at risk. That, in turn, of course, has further consequences. It threatens the whole of the Western alliance that we are part of. For years, we've lived under as a middle-ranking, wealthy and free nation as part of the most privileged alliance of nations on Earth, probably the community that the world has ever seen, ultimately under the protective mantle in recent decades of the economic, military, social, and I cringe a little when I say it, the cultural might of the United States. But the warning signs are all there, that it isn't going to continue much longer. And in the midst of all of this, in a deep-seated sense of anxiety right across the Western world, governments are failing. This is not a reference to Obama in any way politically or personally, but I don't think I've ever seen anything more ridiculous, more frightening, more naive, more stupid than watching the way in which everyone salivated at the thought that this new American President Obama could save the world. Lemming light. Everyone, including the Western press, except Heather, <laughs> right, you know, embraced this idea that if we just get rid of that other man and we put this new one in, it'll all be fixed up. There was only one Messiah. The undue expectations placed on that man's shoulders were ridiculous. We're doing the same thing in Australia. We're casting around for leadership because we want to be let out of it. The problem is, ladies and gentlemen, as any good historian knows, you've got no hope of working out where to go if you can't work out where you are, and you can't work out where you are if you don't know where you've come from. That is our problem. So don't think any time soon some great Western leader who can be trusted anyway is going to come along with the solutions to the problem. Because it isn't going to happen until we collectively wake up to ourselves in my judgment, uh, and that doesn't look like happening any time soon. So it's a grim outlook in some ways. I recently reread, though, a little book called The End of Christendom. It was written by Malcolm Muggeridge. Actually, it's not a, it wasn't written by him. It, it, it's a record of two lectures that he gave in America in 1978. Malcolm Muggeridge was one of those truly brilliant Englishmen. They do happen. <laughs> and he was absolutely up there with the C.S. Lewis's of this world. And he'd been a journalist. He lived in Russia in the heyday after the revolution when much of the West, let alone the Russians, thought this is the way to freedom, you know, atheistic communism. We can do it better without God. That was the left wing's version of how to do it without God. Then you had the right wing version, which was fascism. They both visited unbelievable suffering on humanity. Remember Peter Hitchens? Think you can do it without God? Learn the lessons of history. You can't. He became firstly very cynical and ultimately a Christian of what he saw in Russia. And in 1978, in these two lectures, uh, Pascal lectures uh, in, in America, Pascal named in honour of a great French uh, Catholic uh, philosopher and thinker who wrote so powerfully about mankind, coined that term, the glory and the scum. You know, the nobility that is the God image in us, the scum that comes from our, uh, our fallen nature, evident in all of us. Sometimes we say, I'm the good guy. That's what we do, isn't it? They're the bad guys. No, we're not. The Bible says each of us are a combination of both. Flawed, hopelessly by sin. He became converted. He said, Western society based in Christianity is moving away from the very thing I'm saying now. 
he's much greater mind than me, so I'm only following in his footsteps, really. He warned precisely what was happening. And 33 years on, everything he said would unfold is unfolding. Albeit, I fear, now at an ever-accelerating rate. But, he said in the second lecture, this is no great cause for concern at one level. He said, all societies rise and fall. Another great English mind, Arnold Toynbee, wrote that towards the end of his life in the 1970s. He said, of the 23 great civilizations that he had studied down through the ages, all that had you know, ultimately collapsed, not as a result of external takeover, but of internal decline, and the dying stages, very interesting, the common thing, the dying stages of all the great civilizations were firstly selfishness and then a giving over into apathy. I don't care. I'm not going to lift a finger for anybody else except that I demand someone fix my problems. We must broaden our horizons and understand the Christian hope. There is real work to be done, firstly in this country. We must do everything we can, firstly on our knees, to encourage people, our fellow Australians, to come back to faith. As a very big part of that, we need to recognise that as a multiracial society, great thing, many of the people who come here are very open to the faith. I have a young Chinese friend in Sydney. He's a Presbyterian minister. He's only 31. But you know, he has a thing called rice. I said, why do you call it rice? And he said, because I come from Asia uh, and we like rice. <laughs> I said, what's rice? He said, once a month we get uh, young, uh, mainly Asian believers together in the Sydney Entertainment Centre for a night of fellowship. Not a church, just a night when we come together for some fun, share experiences, sing, pray, what have you. I said, how many do you get? And he showed me a photograph. Auditorium full. He said, eight to 10,000 people. Wouldn't it be an incredible irony if we, from the traditional Caucasian background, who walk away from our faith and our culture and let it decay around it, had the whole situation picked up and retrieved for us by new Australians? God bless them if it happens, but we ought to be working with them in every way we can. And then there's the homelands they came from. You know, the fascinating thing, the wonderful set of opportunities and responsibilities that arise for Australia stems largely from its geography. We are of the West, that's patently obvious, but we're not in it. We're in Asia. And Paul Kelly, who's a journalist I respect enormously, he's the editor-at-large of The Australian. He wrote the other day that, uh, you know, we need to, uh, that Wayne Swan is right to say that Australia can ride, and he was referring to economics, but let's face it, it needs to go much beyond that, I believe, in a whole range of ways, ride the rise of Asia. He went on to say, stop and think about whether our values are in sync with Asia. And he referred to their hard work, to their commitment to their countries, to their family values, and to rising religious faith. That's what he wrote in The Australian just before Christmas. And then he said, you must realise these values are anathema to many of the people who run the debate in Australia today. And they are. But we know that they're right, and we need to tap into it and to work into it and to recognise that if that is God, where God is working, there are tremendous strategic opportunities and responsibilities for us. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a great pleasure being with you. I seek to encourage you in that hope, in the midst of despair, we need to recognise that God is building his kingdom. He will not be mocked. He will not be thwarted. As Peter Hitchens says, that is a very stupid Western idea that will enjoy only a short currency, ladies and gentlemen, because in the end we get our three score and ten. 
And that our response in the midst of this must be to remember that God calls each one of us into a loving relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. We need then to use the gifts and the talents that he has given us and which ultimately belong to him to expand his kingdom here in our own country, here amongst those who come to us in our country, and I would suggest wherever else we have the opportunity, but particularly in Asia. God bless you. If you'd like to download this interview, just go to www.historymakersradio.com and also you can make a donation if you'd like. I'm Matt Prater. Have a great week. History Makers.